The biggest complaint I hear from women is that they don't have the support they need from family and friends to up-level their life, or they just don't know how to do it. Well, I'm changing all that. I have met amazing women on my podcast, and it's inspired me to create the Warrior Women Mastermind. What's a mastermind? It's a small group of women, hand-selected by me, specifically designed and curated for those women who want to up-level their business, brand, and mindset. You'll get incredible support and meet like-minded women in a non-competitive environment. You'll have incredible access to my network of coaches, entrepreneurs, and experts in every field to accelerate you on every level. My next mastermind is launching in the fall. Feeling like you need a push? A boost? Someone to pull you up where you're supposed to be? Well, go to my website at lizswadek.com and schedule a discovery call to learn more about how you can apply. That's Liz, L-I-Z-S-V-A-T-E-K.com. This is invitation only, ladies, but that invitation is waiting for you. Women aren't born warriors. We become them. And the road to becoming a warrior is bumpy as hell. Each week, I'm interviewing women who, through tragedy and triumph, are leaping for greatness. Get ready to unleash your inner warrior. I'm Liz Swadek, and this is Conversations with Warrior Women. Where are you from? An innocent question, right? Maybe not. Asian people are asked the question, where are you from, all the time. And even when they answer Los Angeles or New York, the inevitable follow-up question is, no, really. Where are you from? After the pandemic began in 2020, hate crimes against Asian people increased by over 70%. Asians were targeted, ridiculed, and their businesses shunned and forced to close. This increase in hate crimes is a direct result of the COVID-19 pandemic, but it was the Republican lawmakers who constantly blamed China and Asian Americans for the spreading of the virus, which added to the problem. Former President Donald Trump even referred to the virus as the Kung flu or the China virus on many occasions. Today, my guest talks about her experience as an Asian American woman during the pandemic and tells us about the platform she created to help educate and inform through art and storytelling. The truth is, when we share our stories, it brings us closer. And that is my hope for us today. Let's do it. As some of you may know, I sit on the board of Don't Hide It, Flaunt It, a 501c3 nonprofit organization that provides proven, successful social, emotional learning and anti-bullying and empathy-building programs for students, as well as diversity, equity, and inclusion programming for corporate entities. I'm excited to share with you that this week, we are launching our seventh annual flagship education program and contest for elementary and middle school students called Kids Flaunt. The program is developed and marketed in partnership with Scholastic and is available free of charge to elementary and middle school kids in public and private schools nationwide. Kids Flaunt includes a lesson plan that is designed to build vital social-emotional learning skills and boost self-confidence as well as a follow-up writing or art activity inspired by Don't Hide It, Flaunt It's theme, the thing that makes me different makes me me. After completing the lesson plan and follow-up activity, teachers or parents are encouraged to submit their students' essays or artwork 
for the Kids Flaunt Contest and are entered to win prizes. Please visit scholastic.com slash flaunt it for more information, a lesson plan, activity sheet, and contest entry for Kids Flaunt. Bring it to your school or enter your kid today. That's scholastic.com slash flaunt it. Today on the show, Sandra Shu. Sandra is a watercolor artist based in Los Angeles, California. She specializes in fashion illustration, portraiture, and abstract watercolor work. Sandra attended Cornell University, where she received a BS in textiles and apparel. There she fell in love with the art of fashion illustration. And in 2015, while planning a vacation to France, Sandra decided to bring along a box of watercolors and sketchbook to record her travels. She fell in love with the medium and never looked back. Sandra's work has been shown at 10 Women Gallery in Santa Monica, California, and her work has also been published in Fashion Illustration, Gown and Inspiration 2 by Design Media Publishing UK. Welcome to the show, Sandra. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Liz. I'm so excited to be here. You're my first like artist. Really? That I've had on the podcast. I got kind of excited about that because my grandmother was a watercolor artist. My mother is a watercolor artist. And I thought, oh my God, I, ha- I think you're my first artist on the oh podcast. Well, you have to have them on the show. I mean, hello. Yeah. So <laughs> well, my grandmother's passed away, but I could have my mom for sure. Okay. I'm, I'm sure she'd be so nervous. She would like literally almost die, but yes, <laughs> uh, but I'm excited to have you. And I'm excited to learn more about you. We get, we got connected through the greatest woman alive, Katie Chen. May she, Absolutely. may she connect to everyone in the universe. She will <laughs> do it one day, but I want to go back to the beginning. I like to start at the start. Okay. What was your childhood like? Were there any kind of aha moments that revealed what you would be doing now? I think no aha moments, but I have these distinct memories. You know, my younger sister came along when I was about one and a half. And, you know, being the older older sibling, I was always just trying to get away. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) So I have this distinct memory of like begging to go to my grandparents' house so I could get away from her. And my grandparents would give me paper and pencils and pens and like my greatest moments were just sitting on their couch by myself and, and copying these like manga princesses off of pencil boxes that I had when I was a kid. That was the feeling that I, I always treasure just all my life, just being alone and, and being able to create on paper. I ended up being kind of good at it and everybody kept telling me I was kind of good at it. So that's why I kept doing it or tried to keep doing it you know, taking art classes in school. Yeah. So you saw you had a little talent. People were encouraging you and saying, yeah. oh, look at you. You can draw. Look at that. You went to Cornell. You studied fashion merchandising. But of course, you were taking as many fashion design and illustration classes as you could. Uh-huh. And you even participated in the first student fashion show, which led to you eventually starting your own fashion line. So tell me about that point in your life. You know, I went to Cornell for fashion because it was the best way I could convince my parents to let me do something related to something artistic. What did your parents want you to do, Sandra? They, you know, they, they, you know, they didn't really care about exactly what I did. Actually, I think in the end, my father probably was hoping that I would join him in his business, but they didn't want me to go to art school. They were like, who, you know, starving artists, the whole starving artist idea was not going to work for them. And they just really wanted me to go to college and 
you know, come out and make money. <laughs> so, so when I started looking at colleges, I was like, and, you know, of course, an Ivy League school would have been the top choice for them as well, being Asian parents. So when I started looking around I, I and I saw this program at Cornell, I thought, what a great way to con- convince them to let me do something at least slightly artistic. So I actually started out in the fashion design major, but I quickly learned that I couldn't sew. You know, I was not going to be able to get really good grades in the actual fashion design classes. So I switched to merchandising, but I still took as many classes as, as I could. And especially I fell in love with fashion illustration at the time and did an independent study on that. And then some of the other fashion design students decided to put on their first fashion show. And I still remember, you know, being not very good at sewing. Actually, I think this happens on Project Runway as well. I still remember, you know, an hour before the fashion show, I had my models like helping me tape hems, you know, I'm pinning them into the dresses and things like that. So, but that was a really exciting, fun experience. And then, I mean, you know, now the Cornell fashion show is like, like a thing. Yeah, it really is. It's a, it's a big production. The, you know, the engineers and architects at, you know, there's a school of engineering and, and there's a school of architect art and architecture at Cornell. They get involved in the production and then industry people come, come see it. So it's, it's a big deal. But at the time it was, I think, you know, we founded the Cornell, you know, fashion arts, league and uh, I, I just found the ticket for my fashion show in one oh, of my oh I love that <laughs> back in 1988 <laughs> I love that but it was just you know four of us throwing things together and and you know finding a space on campus to show so it was so cool and yeah. how did you how did so how did you end up starting this fashion line I decided to move back to LA and you know the Asian families do tend to tend to be Want, want you to stick close to home, especially. So I moved back to LA and I really, my father's like, well, you don't have a job. So come work in my office and answer my phones. And, and uh, I was setting up his computer system back in the eighties. He was still handwriting invoices. <laughs> so, you know, with the business classes that I did take at, at school, I, you know, I sent, I set up his, you know, invoicing system and taught him how to use like QuickBooks and things like that. But I really just didn't want to leave what I had studied behind. So I, I actually made some patterns of my own and I, I found a seamstress in downtown LA and um, bought some fabric and had her make some samples. And when I, when I got the samples back, I showed them to my father and he was like, Oh my God, these are really good. And he said, you know what, if you want to do this, there's an office next door. <laughs> you can, I'll, I'll, I'll let you, you know, rent the office space next door and do this while you're helping me out. You know, that's how I got started. I, and I was doing everything. I was like running downtown for fabric and I was doing some of my own pattern making, but also hiring freelance pattern makers. And I had independent seamstresses all over town, like, you know, women who were just, I can't remember. I think I found them in the classified ads because there was no Craigslist or anything like that. And I was, you know, bringing fabric to different people and getting them sewn and, oh my gosh, and convincing people to sell me small, small amounts of fabric and then asking people to, you know, looking for a rep because that's the word, that's the one thing I'm very bad at is selling 
So I, I actually went to the California Mart and, you know, slept all my samples in a big garment bag and, you know, went from rep to rep and, and asked them if they would look at my work. And I, I did find a rep. So I did that for three years and it was, that's hard work. It was hard work. It was really hard. Yeah. I think I worked like 16 hours a day. And yeah, I don't think people realize like that, there's so much work, even just creating the line, let alone convincing someone else that they're going to sell it for you. Cause you're right. Yeah. You're not going to be hawking it everywhere and going everywhere trying to sell. And then you're trying to get it into stores. Like it's almost like there's no end to the levels that you have to like achieve and, and make like hit all the marks to make it yeah. happen. Like it's, yeah. people don't realize like by the time someone's at Macy's, let me just say, yeah. They've, they've killed themselves to get yeah. there. Yeah. It's a backbreaking business. It really is. And, and, you know, even today I look at the big fashion designers. I mean, they really, the, 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 the turnaround, you know, the, the, the timing of everything, everything has to be done. Not, you're just working nonstop. The fashion industry is a killer. It's a killer. Well, yeah. during this time, your father became ill and your sister and you stepped mm -hmm. in to take over the family business and you gave up the fashion line. So tell me, I mean, you, it sounds like you were like, in a, in a way, exhausted and maybe like, okay, maybe this is not the worst thing to give up right now, but you yeah. decided you would step in and help. So, so tell me about that. My father got diagnosed with this rare illness and almost immediately, I think because it was rare, the, it was, it's called amyloidosis. And at the time, the only treatment they knew of was, was the equivalent of chemotherapy. And they put him on chemotherapy right away. And he became so sick right away that he really couldn't go to work almost immediately. So, and I was there, I was already there next door and I knew the whole invoicing system. And I had gone to lunch with his clients and I knew the people that he was working with in Taiwan because I had grown up sort of, you know, calling them uncle and, you know, and so there was nobody else that was going to take over. He had always been a one man show. So logically, and my, you know, my mom was not involved in the business and didn't know anything of it. And my sister at the time was in an advertising agency. And so there was no other choice. I was barely breaking even with my fashion line at the time. And he was generating income to support my mom and basically me <laughs> at the time. So there was really no other choice. So that's what I did. And about a year later, my sister joined me in the business. And it was a tough time because my father's illness that he had to just sort of shut his body down little by little over the course of four years. It just, you know, one organ failure after another. So he was in and out of the hospital, probably once every other month, he was in the, in the month, in the hospital. And, you know, it, it was an, always another emergency situation. And my sister and I tried to spend as much time with him as possible. And, and my mom just, you know, was just devastated by this, by this illness. So it was a tough time. My sister and I would work all day and then go to my parents' house, have dinner with my parents and sort of, you know, massage my father or, you know, tell jokes and, you know, try to make him feel comfortable in any way that we could. And then we would go home, I would go home at 11 o'clock at night. And then because we were working with China and Taiwan, you know, the time zones, we would start corresponding with China and Taiwan at 11 o'clock at night. I mean, we could have done oh it early. Oh my God, Sam. <laughs> That's like a 24 hour situation. 
It was, it was exhausting. And I have to say like, you know, if it wasn't for my husband and my sister's boyfriend, you know, you know, they were both our boyfriends at the time. They were just really supportive and amazing. And yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know how we would have gotten through it. You stayed there a long time doing this business for your father. Like that was a long, long time. And I want to know, were you missing painting at all during this? Were you, was it even in your mind or were you like, I just got to get my head down and just do this. This is what I have to do. This is my, my duty to my father and my family. And I'm just not going to, I'm going to like push my painting away. Even with the fashion line, I hadn't done a lot of fashion illustrations other than sort of technical work for so long. I mean, painting was really something that I basically gave up after high school. And so I hadn't done it in so long. I never even thought about the painting, but while I was in the business, and that's the thing, I I never really spoke up. My father passed away after four years with this illness, but I ended up staying with my sister in the business for 20 years. Part of it was the golden handcuffs, right? It was generating income for my family and the business was doing well. And I feel like I was very passive aggressive towards my sister through that whole time because I was like, I don't want to be here. I'm just doing it for the family. And I, and I felt obligated because, and you know, she could probably, she'll, she'll tell you now that, yeah, we really didn't need you to stay that long because once I left, she was fine without me, but I felt like she needed me. So I stayed for her, but it wasn't the case. Right. And I never said I'm, I'm unhappy here. I want to do something else. I just sensed that I wanted to do something else, but I didn't know that I was. Well, you didn't want to, you didn't let yourself, right. You didn't let yourself even go there. Because you're yeah. just like, that's not possible. You shut the, op- the option down and you were not even going to explore it because it's just not going to happen. And I have to stay here. And yeah. you like, told yourself that story and that was your story. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And also, you know, at the time I, I had kids and because it was our family business, it also allowed me a very flexible schedule. You know, I could you know, run out at three o'clock to pick up my kids if I needed to, or run out at 10 o'clock to go to one of their performances, things like that. And, and you know, that's part of the reason why my sister enjoys having her own business as well. So yeah. But what gave you the courage to start painting again? I left the business when my mom passed away. It was almost like, okay, now that our parents are gone, my sister and I finally sat down and had a talk. And, you know, and I remember just crying and crying. The both of us were crying. And she was like, I want to let you go. I know you're not happy. And I'm like, I don't want to go because I, I think you need help. And it was just very traumatic. Family businesses, you know, the whole dynamic of it is very difficult. Yeah, I finally left after my mom passed away because it was almost like once my parents had moved on and my sister was going to be okay and she told me she was going to be okay, that's when I left. And it was, it was like a sigh of relief. And at the time, my, my kids were teenagers and, and I was just going to take time to be with them. I still didn't even think about pursuing art again at that point. It wasn't until my older son had left and my younger son was starting to be more independent. A friend of mine said, hey, and you know, her son was the same age as my younger son. She's like, you know, we got some free time. You want to, what do you want to do? You want to take a writing class with me or you want to take a painting class with me? And I was like, Painting. Yes. Yes. Remember that? (laughs) I'm so glad. I'm so glad. 
I'm yeah. So that's when I started. And I started taking classes just near my house at the Brentwood Art Center, which, you know, growing up, I always was, you know, we drove by and, you know, being immigrants and, you know, not having a lot of money at the time, I asked my parents maybe once if we could take art class, if I could take an art class there. And they said, no, 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 no. We don't have enough money for that. And so, I mean, I knew that school my entire life and I finally started taking an art class there. And so it was, it was really great. My, my friend was like, and when we started painting, my friend was like, okay, you tricked me into this because you've known how to draw and paint all along. She's like, look at me. I'm drawing something that barely looks like what I wanted That would be me. That would be me next to you. Like a stick figure with like one squiggly hair. What is that, Liz? And I'd be like, I just do not know. I don't know. It's so funny. Yeah. So you tricked her because you were not really not. I mean, I kind of just took to it like fish, you know, fish and water. I just. You remembered. Yeah, I, I, it just, I just fell in love with it so much. Yes, and now look at all the things you're doing. And I, and I want to talk about the things you're doing because I saw your picture of Winnie. Is I think it's Winnie Harlow. I think. Yeah. Oh my God, that's like the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I was so oh, excited. About it. Like literally made my eyes like I was like opening my eyes like wide. I was like, how pretty <laughs> that is. Oh my God. But I want to divert a little bit because I want to talk to you about the fact that you know we've been hearing a lot about Asian hate crimes. What, what kind of has been fascinating to me is that hate crimes are at an all-time low right now, mm-hmm. except anti-Asian hate crimes have increased by 150%. Yeah. So in 2020, yeah. and largely in New York and LA, I kind of want to know how you're feeling about that. Like, this is a crazy, I didn't even, I mean, I had been hearing about this and some of my Asian friends had told me like, oh, like, first of all, this has been going on a long time, wake up. Mm-hmm. Secondly, like they're beating up old people. Like they really need to stop. Like this is insane. But I want to know what your experience is and how you're kind of feeling about all that. Yeah, I think old people are just easy targets. That's the thing. So it's, and that's, that kind of speaks to the whole Asians as being submissive and quiet. And it's kind of easy because Asian, and that's the other thing is Asian hate crimes don't get reported a lot because uh, I think I re- I read one of the ladies that got attacked, right? She was waiting in line to get some egg tarts, which is a Cantonese delicacy. And, you know, she got attacked and her family said, you know, let's, let's, let's tell the police and, and everything. And she said, no, I, 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 I I'm fine nothing, nothing, no permanent damage has been done. I don't want to tell the police, but her, her, her family actually did report it. And then the detectives, so sweet, went out and got her replacement egg tarts. (laughs) And it was just such a sweet story. I just love it. But you know, nobody, especially the older generation does not want to talk about it. I still personally experienced it immediately when the coronavirus uh, uh, pandemic started, I was, this was way, no, maybe two weeks before the shutdown, I was at my chiropractor's office and I was waiting, you know, to go in. And there was a woman there who looked perfectly normal and she had a, a little dog with her and I was petting her dog and she seemed fine. She smelled at me. And then she, she, she went in to get her treatment. She came back out and she looked at me and she, and she, she came walking over and she said, Hey, you know, 
They're screaming Chinese people at LAX for the coronavirus. You know, and I'm looking at her like, oh, she said not Chinese people, people from China. And and I thought, what does that, (laughs) at first I was like, what does that have to do with me? I'm I'm like, what? (laughs) What? Yeah. 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 And then, you know, at the hair salon the following week, I coughed and- I mean, the woman three chairs down from me was like, are you, are, are you sick? And, and, you know, she got up and, and walked away. And it was, I mean, this was even before lockdown, because at the time I really wasn't aware of what was going on with the pandemic. And so it was, it wasn't until afterwards that I was like, oh my God. I mean, the first incident at the chiropractor's office, I told my chiropractor, I was, I was already feeling kind of upset by it. She was like, oh my God, that was really racist. I can't believe my patient did that. But yeah, that happened to me personally immediately. And, with the, even after, do you think it was it increasing? At, like once we were in lockdown and were, I mean, not that well, we were locked away, I don't know. But like, did you feel that it was still increasing or like people were still like saying even, I mean, it doesn't help when you have a president calling it the China virus. Yeah, no, what happened was, I mean, a lot of Asian businesses shut down even earlier than had to had to close their doors permanently is what I'm saying. Economically. Because of the pandemic, but because of the, the anti-Asian sentiment that was going yeah, on. Yeah, so like people were like, oh, I'm not going to a Japanese restaurant or no, you know, not even a Japanese restaurant, but like I'm not going to a Chinese restaurant because that's where the virus came from. It's so ignorant. It's so ignorant. It's so, you know, Chinese restaurants have suffered more than even, you know, that people wouldn't even get takeout from Chinese restaurants. You know, it's just, and Chinese grocery stores, Asian owned dry cleaners, you know, just, I don't want to like. No, but I, but you know what? I think people don't realize. Yeah. I don't think people realize like maybe, you know, one friend that's acting like that. Yeah. But all it takes is one because one leads to 10, leads to 20, leads to 30. And before you know it, you have to close your business. Yeah. Because you just got this like, you know, pox on you where people are thinking this crazy ignorant thing and thinking you are the source of a virus that you, that you have been in America and just (laughs) doing nothing to to make a virus happen. Yeah. Yeah. Insane. People have, that's the thing. People have a very, and that's the thing about being Asian. Even I think black people in America are not assumed to be from another country. But as an Asian, the minute someone looks at you in general, they assume that you're not from America. That you were not born here. Yeah. I get this all the time. Where are you from? You know, and if I say I'm from LA or California, but where are you really from though? And it didn't really occur to me until later on, until recently that you know, that kind of question has always sort of bothered me. I'm like, and, and I didn't realize that, that it bothered me because it was actually a racist thing, right? It's an assumption. Well, no one's asking me that. <laughs> yeah. So you tell me. Yeah. No one's it, asking me where I'm from and where I'm, you know. Yeah. And even if I say, okay, I was born in North Carolina, which I was. Uh-huh. Go Raleigh, North Carolina. Well, no one said, no, where are you from? Yeah. No one's asking me that. I'd yeah. have to volunteer that information. I would have to be like, oh, my family's from this, you know. Yeah. And it makes you feel like, it makes me feel like I don't belong here. Yeah. Yeah. So. Which is insane because the whole premise of our country 
Yeah. The whole premise of our country is built on this melting pot of people from all these different places, all coming together yeah. and living here. We yeah. know none of us is from here. Yeah. <laughs> really? If you think about it, none of us are from here. We all came from somewhere else and then we came here. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that is bananas and I'm sorry that, that that happens, but that's an interesting thing to me because you're right. They, they're asking you that and they're not asking you it once. They're asking you two ways. Once yeah. they're saying, where are you from? And you say, LA. And then they go, no, where are you from? <laughs> yeah. If you didn't drive I don't believe you. The first time. Yeah. Yeah. I don't believe you because <laughs> the right because of the way you look really, right. you know? Right. Well, you, you, you say the hardest lesson you've had is to speak up and early on, and you're really learning this now and even learning, just even saying that, right? Even saying that out loud, what you just said, you don't, you haven't been, you're like, oh my God, wait a minute. <laughs> That's, yeah. That doesn't make me feel good. And I'm going to say it doesn't make me feel good. Yeah. You know, because I um, mean, really, I haven't spoken about that. It's happened to me in my entire life, but I haven't spoken up about that until in the last few weeks, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think more people need to speak up about that and ex and explain why that's an ignorant thing to say and yeah. a rude, racist thing to say. You said your hardest lesson has been to speak up and early on. I want to know, is this what kind of led you to creating Share Your Asian Story? Because I love that. I, I told you, I saw your Instagram and I was like, I love this. I was like, because I'm all about sharing the stories. <laughs> love sharing. The Absolutely. I love it. So is that what kind of had you made you create that? Yeah, I think just a, a, the a, the series of events. First of all, you know, having personally experienced the anti-Asian sentiment because of the coronavirus just early on, and then hearing about the elders who, there was one man who actually died because he was pushed. He got a concussion and he died a couple days later. And he was in his 80s and he had just gotten his vaccine. I mean, he survived the coronavirus and he was killed. It's terrible. So when I first, when, you know, those things that were actually caught on video started appearing in social media in January, um, I started going to a, some clubhouse rooms hosted by Asians who were talking about it. And honestly, it was an amazing experience because growing up in LA on the West side of Los Angeles, I didn't always surround, I wasn't always surrounded by Asians. Like there are Asian communities here, but I wasn't. So being in that room was really one of the first times that I had spent a lot of time with other Asians who were talking about similar experience, you know, they were talking about what to do, but then other people started speaking up about this other feeling, right? Of there was a very famous model who spoke about you know, when she was first cast for a certain editorial shoot, they tried to make her look like a white person. And she's like, wait, why are my Asian features not good enough? And so at the time I connected with, with someone on there who had founded a, an organization called Hate is a Virus. Her name is Tammy Cho. And I said, as an illustrator, I would love to help you know, in any way, if you have any kind of campaign or anything, I would love to help. And they started this organization back in April of 2020 because they saw the they knew about the rise in Asian hate crimes and and sort of the the, the way that businesses were Asian businesses were suffering. So they formed the organization to try to help. And so that was sort of my first connection with activism in that area. 
And um, I also belong to a community of illustrators that I met on Instagram and it's called Draw Dot. And the founder is Canadian Chinese. And he's funny. He was like, oh, those things happen in America. They don't happen in Canada. I mean, he luckily he grew up in Toronto. And the thing is, what he was talking about was the violence against Asians. He didn't real he didn't realize until we started talking about it. It's very interesting that the thing that I just talked about, you know, where are you from, and you know, those little subtle racist things had been happening to him all his life as well. Well, you just start to you, you maybe you start to accept it as just like exactly. this is what it is you know? exactly. I, mean, I even even that Me Too stuff when that was coming out. I was an actress, and I remember this. This guy was like, I'm going to do this audition and I need you to take off your top. So I, you know, cause it's going to be topless and I just want to make sure, sure you can do it. And I remember being like, okay. And then, I, and then I remember, I'm like, I'm not doing that. Yeah. But a bunch of other girls did. Yeah. And I, and I, and I felt weird about it. I was like, maybe I should have done it. I was like, I didn't get that role because I didn't do that. Mm-hmm. And I thought it seemed wrong. And then I was like, I don't, I don't, then why do I feel bad about that? I don't feel bad about that. And then, you, you know, you think about it. We just had normalized so many things. Yeah. When, when people start to say, this happened to me, I'm like, well, shit, that happened to me too. You're right. That is wrong. Like, you know, you, you almost need somebody else sometimes just telling you, you know, right. almost your own story. Exactly. And then you're like, wait, that's wrong. <laughs> like, uh-huh. you know, people should not be doing that. So yeah. I think it's like, you know, when he was talking to you, yeah. Like, oh shit, <laughs> you know, like that did happen to me. And that does happen. Yeah. All the time. Yes. Yes, it does. Yeah. And so as we started talking about it and the hate crimes were, there were more things happening every day. It's almost a bad thing to have it reported in the media. It's one thing, you know, it's great to raise awareness, but it also makes the people who are the on the other extreme more likely to commit crimes because I think once the first incident was reported more people were like yeah I'm gonna go out there <laughs> and, and you know it's so things got actually worse in the last few weeks and then it escalated to the I mean to the Atlanta spa shootings but anyway so Marcus and I started talking about how I would like to do something with our illustration community to raise awareness about Asian hate crimes At first he was like, yeah, you know, he does these campaigns. He has a a large following of illustrators and brands. He's always done sort of themed competitions where he asks the artists, the, the illustration community to submit work in that theme. And then, you know, he picks like favorite works to highlight and it's just great exposure for the illustrators. And he said, let's do one around Stop Asian Hate you know, I would like for you to, to do the campaign launch image. And he said, I'm going to ask two other Asian illustrators to do it. And it, all of a sudden what happened was he actually did get cyber bullied online over another issue. And by these, by like a white woman and, a, you know, it, it had all these racist overtones and he really, it, it, it fueled him. It fueled him. And he said, let's do this. March 9th, we're going to launch your images. We're going to, you know, we let's create a hashtag for it that's not about violence and hate. Let's do it with a positive message. And, you know, we're going to launch the campaign with your images. And then I'm going to invite artists from all over the world to, to submit. And so 
on March 9th, at the time, it was very interesting. Like Instagram had just launched the, the feature where you could have four people in a live instead of just two. And literally the week before. And so he said, the day that we launch our images, the four of us, let's go on and talk about it. And it was really funny because he's in Canada. And even though he thought he had the feature, it wasn't available in Canada yet. So we had to start with no, you know, he was like, wait, I can't get you guys in here. I can only get one of you guys in here. So we had to stop with him. And then I had to launch it from here. And it was my very first Instagram live ever. And I'm, so anyway, the four of us went on to talk about it and it was amazing. The response, you know, some of, I think Katie might've popped on that day. Yeah. Katie popped on that day, our friend Katie Chin, and just us sharing our personal experiences about, you know, the casual racism that we've experienced all our lives yes. and talking about how we felt about the recent violence and anti-Asian sentiment, it really struck home for a lot of people. And people were starting to ask me, like Katie messaged me and said, I thought that was wonderful. And that's when I, I, I said, oh, you know, if you would be interested in sharing your story because she had just shared with us, remember Liz? Yeah, her, her story, which is an incredible story. I'm yeah, like, her personal, yes, yeah. Story, yes the piece that she had written that she had read. And it was like, I mean, when I heard it, I immediately, you know, it made me ball that the, yes. when I first read, heard it. Yeah. And you thought, thought you wanted to highlight her too. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then other people reached out to me and said, we loved it. And, you know, I was being serious, but I was, you know, you know, I said to my friends who reached out, I said, you know, I'm sure you have a story to tell too, just as a, as a response to their comments. And they started saying, yeah, I would love to be on next time. And I thought, what? <laughs> then you knew you needed a platform. Yes. Yes. So I went back to the other illustrators and to Marcus and I said, you know what? I think we have a platform that we could used to to have people who are not artists who you know can't post something on Instagram or don't really feel they have the ability to create something to share their story why don't we do an interview series and Marcus said you know what I got a lot of stuff going on with my fashion illustration community community and which he does he's working with brands he's working with illustrators he's doing he's an agent so he and he said I really don't have time for this. And the other two illustrators had their things going on. And they said, Sandra, if you want to do it, run with it. Yeah. And I said to my husband, you know, I feel pretty strongly about this, you know, but I would have to do all the work. And he said, no, 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 no. You're, <laughs> he knows me. It's funny. He's like, you get really passionate about something, but you drop things. You, you're not gonna, you're not gonna, yeah. Be consistent. It's a lot of work. It's going to be a full-time job. Yeah. And I thought, you're right. I have a lot of dancing to do because I dance. <laughs> I have a lot of other things going on and, and I have my own personal artwork to do. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to do it. But the next day I was still feeling very strongly about it. So I just went ahead and launched the account. And the next day after we launched the account, the Atlanta shootings happened. Oh, Wow. And the four of us decided to do another Instagram live. And the response to that was fantastic as well. I mean, people really, and, and that's the thing, once that happened 
and we were posting artwork from from people who had who had submitted just the submissions started the hashtag is you know going really strong and then one of the the amazing things that happened was one of the artists who submitted to the campaign share your asian story she made a beautiful image using an asian designer prabal gurung who's nepalese and very very uh, active in the anti asian hate movement she made an illustration of an asian face Asian woman wearing one of his creations and she put a mask on it that says hate is a virus. And so right after the shootings, Prabal shared it and it went completely yeah, viral. It was everywhere. I saw it too. Yes. Yes. And I mean, I think because he's linked with a lot of celebrities, Jada Pinkett Smith was one of the first people to share it. And then Olivia Munn shared it. And then I think it's it, and it's now I believe become the face of the uh, stop Asian hate movement really, yeah. and it came out of our campaign, That's which is mind blowing to me. That's awesome. So the thing I love most is I mean we've gotten just photos, you know, posts in, on Instagram of photos of people and their families, and you know people say I never spoke up about this before. But, you know, seeing this account or seeing this hashtag has made me want to share. And it's really been amazing. It's- and people need to do that. You need just people need to share their stories. How if someone wants to share their Asian story with you, how are they going to how should they do that? Our Instagram account is called is just at share your Asian story or you can and or you can hashtag share your Asian story. And, you know, I basically go there and check for submissions all the time. Okay, so tell me what's going on with your art. What's the next? What's what are you working on? What am I working on? So actually, you know, I feel like right now because we're having weekly guests on share your Asian story and I I started out with Katie. Yes, and you did that beautiful illustration of her. It was gorgeous. Oh, thank you. I love that. So yeah. you do illustrations for that? Is that sort of kind of how you're, you're pivoting? Yeah. I mean, I've always been more into portraits than anything else, right? I love, I just love faces. So if somebody wants to see your work, they can go to your site, right? And your beautiful picture of Winnie Harlow is literally my favorite thing in the whole world. But you do portraits and people can hire you to do portraiture. Yeah, absolutely. And all stuff, right? So. Yeah. Your, 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 is it, what's your site called? It's www.sandrashoeart.com. But H-S-U, just so you H-S-U, know. yeah. But the, really the best way is to find me on Instagram and it's the same account handle as Sandra Shoe Art on Instagram. And I got a lot of messages that way. Okay, so, so we'll, we'll share that in the show notes if you want to, because she, she, you guys, she's a brilliant artist. If you see her illustrations, they're just, Beautiful, beautiful portraiture, beautiful illustrations, gorgeous. So, all right, guess what? We're on to the speed uh-huh. round. It's okay. party time. Okay. <laughs> Cocktail of choice, Sandra. Believe it or not, I rarely drink because I get that Asian flush. Oh, yes, I've heard of this. Yes, yeah. it starts from the tip of my head. And, you know, the more I drink, the further down my body it travels. Oh and God. I literally get a hangover while I'm drinking. So it's not fun. I mean, I, I put up with it through college, but like I don't do it. So really, I mean, you know, cannabis is my my okay. drug of choice really these days. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so my husband will have a cocktail and I'll come out here and, you know, chew on a gummy or, 
you know, light up something these days. Yeah, I hear you. There's no drinking for you. I've heard that. It's so funny. I've heard that. And my other girlfriend, I swear, three sips and she's like on the couch laying down. I'm like, three sips. I know. It's so sad because it's such a social thing. I know. It's horrible. Mantra or quote you live by. This is something that I really like in regards to art. If you don't like your work, it's because your abilities haven't caught up with your taste level. So just keep doing it. That's my favorite. Ooh. If you're just, yeah, just keep doing it. Yeah. If you, your abilities haven't caught up with your taste level. Yeah. Wow. I love that. What makes you feel unstoppable? Connecting with other people. Just the more I talk to other people like you and Katie, just it, everybody just really inspires me. And, you know, the more I see, you know, the amazing things that other people are doing, it makes me feel like I can follow in their footsteps and and do amazing things as well. I love that. Who do you most admire? My son, Noah. Okay. He's 24 years old and honestly, just so earnest and so true. He's like Mulan or something. You know, he's brave and true. <laughs> he's working with kids. You know, he's teaching high school math and, you know, it. it's his first year. It took him so long to get them to come over and, and, and really start connecting with him. He's just so earnest and so true. And actually he's interviewing me later today for his class. How cute is that? Yeah. Hardworking, earnest, true, just true. I love him. Oh my God. I love that. What are you most proud of? Really at the moment, I'm, I'm very proud of share your Asian story. It's giving Asians who've been so quiet their whole lives, a platform of a place to raise their voice and speak up and that's my favorite thing about it. It's been amazing. Yeah, you really are. It's therapeutic, right? It it's really is. Like you've you you are known and heard and seen for who you are, and somebody says, "Me too." Yes, that happened to me too. Yeah, and thank I, you. For, I, you know, it really is. It just makes you feel like like a set like a, a giant piano sigh of relief. Yeah off of yourself, right? Yeah. When yeah. Thank you says, for it so well. Yeah. I heard that. I heard what you said and I agree. Yeah. I love that you're doing that. You should be proud of that. Yeah. What's exciting you the most right now? Yeah. Again, just connecting with everybody and, you know, bef- even before uh, Share Your Asian Story came along, I was connecting with fashion illustrators all over the world. And, you know, there's, there are a lot of activist causes, causes all over the world that we each are interested in. And I have to say, like, some of the illustrators that have contributed to the campaign, they're not Asian, but they stand with us. And to know that is amazing too. And, you know, I want to stand up for the causes that they are, that they believe in as well, because we're all in it together. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, it is amazing when you see, I mean, I, you know, I've definitely have had some friends be like, I just love that you come go hard for us, Liz, white woman. (laughs) But you know what? We do. We need to go hard for each other. It doesn't matter. You know, like we need to get involved and be interested and care about our friends' causes and, and, you know, causes that may, we think have nothing to do with us, but you know what? It does have everything to do with us. Yeah. Because, you know, when I, when, when I first was looking at your share your agent story and this, I was posting stop Asian hate. And then I started posting stop white terrorism. Yes, I saw that. Because you know what, Sandra? 
I hate to point the finger back to the white people, but I'm going to have to do it again. <laughs> I'm going to have to say it's white people who are killing Chinese people and it's white people who are killing black people. So really, we are not stopping Asian hate. We are stopping white terrorism mm -hmm. and we need to get rid of these AK whatever's 15. No one needs an assault rifle. So mm -hmm. I feel like, you know what, white people, time to time to really get real. Like we can yeah. stop all the hate. That's all great. But yeah. can we get rid of the guns that, yeah. that are unnecessary? Nobody yeah. needs an assault rifle. And can we admit that white people are at a helm, the helm of a lot of this problem? We, yeah. are, we are the source. Yeah. You know, we can't expect Asian people to stop the hate against Asian people. Yeah. They're not perpetrating the hate on each other. It's the white people. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. So we have to go hard for each other and we got to stand up for each other and say and call call it. It is what it is, man. You got to call it like it is. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. Yeah. It, yeah. Thank you for putting it in that way. I didn't even realize. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what? I put that on Facebook and I had a couple people unfriend me. They, they Someone put like peace out or game over and like they unfollowed me. And what? I was like, that's cool. Like, and they've got Black Lives Matter stuff all over their Facebook page. And I'm like, I got it. That was a little too far for you. Well, guess what? That's what it's going to take. Mm -hmm. If I shook you up and made you think for five seconds, then I did my job. Mm -hmm. Because white people need to wake up. Yeah. Wake up. Yeah. 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 Well, Sandra, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really, you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you and, and sharing about you know, what's going on with the Asians in this world right now. <laughs> yes. And I want you to keep sharing your story and I want everyone to share their Asian stories because honestly, like we were saying, and you said so well, this is what we need for healing, but yes. also to move the needle towards an understanding of like what, what Asian people are going through right now with this pandemic, but also before, even before, yeah. you know, you were talking, this has been a lifetime of people kind of taking these little jabs and things. And we need to educate ourselves and understand that that is not okay. Yeah. So thank you for coming on today and, thank and you. sharing your awesome Asian story with me. Oh, thank you, Liz. <laughs> okay. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for joining me today. And remember to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. This is the Conversations with Warrior Women podcast with me, Liz Swadek. And remember, every woman has a story. You just need to ask her. Bye.